Good morning if you're watching online, if you're here for the first time. My name's Mark. It's my delight to be one of the staff elders here and to be able to bring the message. We are in a series called Follow Me as we're going through the Gospel of Mark. And we are in this extended uh, look at what's often called the Passion Week and, um, and this extended gaze into Jesus's sacrifice and sufferings. I can tell you that um, Mark chapters 14 and 15 are difficult passages to read because of the nature of the suffering of our Lord, but they're difficult passages to preach as well. And I appreciate hearing from Kenneth two weeks ago and Adam last week, and then Christo's up next week and, and, and Vince after that. Grateful that we have uh, such wonderful uh, preachers in the congregation to bring these uh, important words to us. We have just a few messages left before we come to the end of this gospel at the, uh, the end of the month of August, and then we'll shift to some other things in the fall. This morning, we're in Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 15, 5, and Carla Segovia is going to read God's word for us this morning. So prepare your hearts for God's word, please. And they led Jesus to the high priest um, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed them at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting. Yeah. You guys want to use this one? Try again. Hello. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself in the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even, even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that this man testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right of the hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemn him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warm himself, she looked at him and said, You were also with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out to the gateway and the rooster crowd. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. 
But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief's priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Thanks, Pam. Let's pray. Oh God, I have one simple request at this time. By the power of the Holy Spirit, enable us to see Jesus Christ, Messiah. To see him seated at the right hand of the Father. And to see how great is his love for lost sheep. That he would give his life as a ransom for many. And then to know as his sheep, that we are so loved. By the power of these words in your inspired book and the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray for this congregation to know the love of Christ. Amen. This week, the Axios AM newsletter on Tuesday began with this cheerful news. One big thing, existential threats soar. Went on to say, put aside your politics and look at the world clinically and you'll see three areas many experts ex consider existential threats to humanity worsening in 2023. The areas are nuclear catastrophe, rising temperatures, and all-powerful AI capabilities. How can the world be saved from existential threats like these? Now, let me say I am grateful for smart and hardworking people who work on threats like these. And some of you here are involved in working on threats like these or others. And I'm grateful for people who do those things. My job, however, is not to address solutions to things like these. My job is to lift your eyes from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and to remind you of the greatest threat of all, the holy and justified wrath of God against human sin and then to turn your attention to the gospel of Mark with the good news that Jesus came to save the world from the existential threat of God's wrath against our sin by giving his life as a ransom for many. Now, how will Jesus do this? Mark, the gospel writer, has slowed way down here so that we can see 
and hear and feel how difficult this is. Every scene in chapters 14 and 15 sharpens the focus a little bit more. We've seen a couple weeks ago, we heard how Jesus has come to do what no one else can do. And last week we heard how if he's going to do that, he's going to have to descend into the darkness in order to do that. The darkness of betrayal and the internal agony of, of, of what he would need to bear on the cross for us. This morning we're sharpening the focus even a little more and adding two vital pieces to this assembling picture of Jesus who's come to take our sins and bear bear them on the cross to be the ransom for us. There's an obvious picture or piece of the, uh, of the picture here for us, and there's a subtle one. The obvious one comes in verse 62. Look there with me, please. The high priest asks Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus answers, I am. There is no more clear affirmation from Jesus anywhere that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. This is as clear as it can get. This is the clearest proclamation that he gives anywhere in Scripture, that he is the Messiah. That's the obvious picture, that the piece of the picture that's being uh, assembled for us here. Here's the subtle one. This takes a little, little more work to get at, and we're going to work on unpacking this in a, in a moment. Jesus is the one who's come to save the world, right? He's come to save the world from our sin, from its sins. And it turns out, here's what we're going to get today, that Jesus is going to have to do this completely alone, all by himself with no help. I read a review this week of the show Secret Invasion in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this Nick Fury story, and the, the reviewer just said, this is a, a show that follows a common theme in spy shows, and that is this. The spy can't trust the government, so if he's going to save the world, he's got to do it all by himself. Well, that's a movie, but this is reality. If Jesus is going to save the world from its sin, he's going to have to do it all by himself. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the whole cast of characters in these scenes and ask two simple questions. First, can anyone be found to stand with Jesus? And second, why can Jesus save the world? Why can Jesus alone save the world. What qualifies him to do this? So let's start with this. How can anyone be found to stand with Jesus? Now the setting here, Jesus has come into Jerusalem uh, on uh, what we call Palm Sunday, and um, now we're going through what's called Holy Week, and we've we've come to Thursday night was when the the Passover meal uh, was received with the disciples, and then he went out to pray, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he was arrested later on Thursday night, and now it's late Thursday night, early Friday morning, and um, 
the, the map of Jerusalem that you have in front of you here kind of maybe can orient you. I like maps. I like to be able to see things spatially. So over on the right, that little red circle, that's the Garden of Gethsemane on the, at the Mount of Olives outside the city. The blue circle is where the, the temple complex is. And so as he was arrested and brought into the city, they would have come right in front of the temple and sort of gone around it. And now they're at uh, the, the lower yellow circle on the left there. That's the house of the high priest. The high priest at this time was Caiaphas. Mark doesn't name him here, but the other gospel writers do. And that's where we're opening up the, the passage today. And then that green circle, that's Herod's palace. And that's probably where Pilate was staying. And in chapter 15, he'll be taken to Pilate. So that short walk there. So that's, that's visually what's happening. So I want to ask you, can anyone be found to stand with Jesus? The first more narrow question is this, can Israel, will Israel stand with Jesus? And that's what comes into view in this first section here as Jesus is before the council. It says, if you look back in verse 53, they led Jesus, which is notable. Jesus has been in control of, of his ministry throughout these public years, and now he's allowing himself to be led to the high priest, and the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. And then Peter follows along at a distance and ends up in the courtyard below. So they're on the second floor of Herod's, of uh, Caiaphas's house, and these leaders for Israel are gathered together, chief priests, elders, and scribes. Those three groups make up what's called the Sanhedrin, this group of 70, this Jewish council that's in charge of their religious affairs, this governing body for them. And this should be hopeful for Jesus, right? Because he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And this is the group of people. They have the scriptures, the patriarchs, the promises, the covenants. Surely this group of people is going to figure out what Jesus is up to, and they're going to thank him and pray for him and encourage him along the way. But they don't. In fact, we've already heard repeatedly that they're jealous of him. They're afraid of his popularity, and they've been out to kill him since all the way back in chapter 3. And so now we have sort of a trial of sorts taking place at night, an odd time for a trial. But the sole purpose of this trial is really to find a way to get Jesus condemned to death. They want him dead. And so it's a noisy scene. There's dozens and dozens of people gathered there. There are all these false witnesses that they're bringing in one after another, saying, I saw him do this. I heard him say that. But even their testimony doesn't agree. They know, following the scriptures, that they need two or three witnesses in order to bring about the death penalty, which is a bit ironic because it means they're trying to comply with scripture by violating scripture, you shall not bear false witness is the ninth commandment. Shall not murder is the fifth commandment. And they're about to do both. In the midst of all this gross hypocrisy, Jesus, picture the scene, all this going on around him, and he's silent. He refuses to defend himself. You ever been accused of something you didn't do? even a little thing. I don't know about you, but what goes on inside of me isn't silence. I want to rise up and set the record straight and defend myself. And Jesus is silent. Finally, the high priest says directly to him, are 
you the Christ, the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed, the son of God? And Jesus says these stunning words. I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Same thing he said in chapter 13. Instead of tearing his robes in repentance, the high priest tears his robes in fury, calling this blasphemy, which is strange since Jesus really is God. And technically, it's the high priest who's blaspheming. But mobs don't listen to reason, do they? And this one is ready to kill Jesus. Jesus has come to save the world. Will Israel stand with him? No. No, they won't. And we'll see shortly that a mob, a, gr a crowd from Israel calls for his crucifixion. Okay, we've eliminated one group. How about Peter, representing perhaps the disciples? Will Peter stand with Jesus? That's the next section here. We've already seen that of the 12 disciples, one, Judas, has already betrayed him. That's how he got arrested. The other 11, it says in verse 50, they fled him and left. Now, it appears that at least one of them doubled back later, Peter, and he has followed Jesus into this courtyard where he's warming himself at this fire. Now, just remember, just a few hours earlier, Peter had boasted that even if all the rest of the disciples fell away, he wouldn't do that. But here we see, when encountered by a young girl, Peter denies Jesus once and then again. And as the whispers go with the people standing around the young lady there, no, he looks like, no, he's a Galilean. He's got, surely you're one of them. And Peter utters these words. I do not know this man. I do not know this man. Only a few hours from I will never fall away to I do not know this man. And as he utters those words and the rooster crows the second time, he's a broken man. He's denied his Lord and all he can do is weep. Jesus has come to save the world. Will Peter or any of the disciples stand with him? No. He's going to stand alone. Well, how about Rome? Famous for its justice system. How about Rome's representative here, Pilate, chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. The chief priests and the elders and scribes, the council, they, they hold counsel and they, they take Jesus over to Pilate and they're bringing many charges against him. Now, Pilate is Rome's representative in this, gov in this province of Judea. So the buck stops with him. He's the governor. He's a combination of pragmatic and opportunistic and ruthless. But above all, he's a man who's driven by self-preservation. And we'll see that come into focus more clearly as Christo brings the next section to us next week. This is a man who's willing to set aside justice and condemn an innocent man if it means keeping the peace there in Jerusalem. But he is in no way convinced that Jesus is, has done anything worthy of uh, death. 
And as the mob moves over to him and Jesus is accused of many things, all Pilate can get out of Jesus is this very vague sort of response, you say that I am, which is sort of a way of saying, well, you don't really know who I am. You don't get what it means for me to be the king of the Jews. So I might be the king of the Jews, but not in a way that you imagine. And then there are these remarkable words. When Jesus made uh, no further answer, Pilate was amazed. Verse 5. Pilate was amazed. Now, we've heard people amazed at Jesus throughout the gospel. That's one of the themes here. Back in chapter 1, they were amazed in the synagogue at his teaching. In chapter 2, they were amazed when he forgave this man his sins, and then healed him from his paralysis. So they've been amazed at what he said and what he's done. Now Pilate is amazed that he says and does nothing. We'd expect, wouldn't you expect anyone being barraged by false accusations and malicious witnesses and, and potentially about to be killed as a result to at least try to defend himself? But Jesus knows what he's doing. His silence is an expression of his authority and his control of the situation. Jesus is in complete control. He knows what he's doing. Back to Pilate. Will Pilate or Rome stand with Jesus? No. No. Survey this scene. What do we see here? Who's doing the will of God? Anyone from Israel? Any of the disciples? Anyone from Rome? There's only one person doing the will of God here, and that's Jesus. Sure, Jesus is the only one who can atone for our sins. We get that. But couldn't someone at least support him? Couldn't someone defend him? Couldn't someone at least stand next to him and pray for him? And now can you see your face in this picture? Would you have done better? This is an indictment, not just of the people assembled here. Hear this. This is an indictment of the human race. This isn't like a job opening where there are many good candidates, but one that's better than the rest. This is like a job opening where the other candidates are trying to kill the only qualified candidate. That's what's happening here. All we like sheep, all we, can you get your name in that picture? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Jesus comes to save the world, and he'll need to do it all by himself. And praise God. He will. Why? What qualifies him to do this? What is it about Jesus that enables him to be the ransom, to pay the ransom for our sins? Back to verse 62. Put your eyes there again with me, please. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the anointed one. So the question is, what kind of a Messiah is he? What kind of a Christ is he? 
And the answer is he's the Messiah that's been revealed throughout Scripture. And Mark has been subtly drawing from all these different strands of Scripture and all the different ways Jesus has revealed himself to, to, to put him in front of us here. So what I want to do right now, I want to do something a little different. I want to make a suggestion, and that is if you take notes, I want to just suggest you just, just put your pen or pencil down. If, if you have your phone open, maybe just put it away. This is not a, a demand. Nobody's checking if you're doing that or not. But I want to just do something a little different here. I want to just wash over you God's word about who Jesus is as it's culminating and converging on this scene. So we're not going to put all these verses up on the screen. I just, I just want them to wash over you. Hear the word of God about his beloved son. What kind of a Messiah is he? Let me, let me just highlight five ways, five aspects to his Messiahship. I am Messiah, he says. First, he's the promised Messiah. We've heard this over and over as he refers to himself as son of man. That comes from Daniel. Hear this. Daniel 7. To him, son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. What kind of a Messiah is he? A promised Messiah. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's a prophetic Messiah. Have you noticed how everything Jesus says comes true? He said Peter would deny him, and it happened. He said Judas would betray him. He said in chapter 14, verse 18, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And in verse 43, Judas comes with a crowd with swords and clubs to betray Jesus with a kiss. Jesus says of the disciples, you will all fall away. Chapter 14, verse 27. Chapter 14, verse 50. And they all left him and fled. If everything Jesus says comes true, shouldn't we listen to him and believe him and do what he says? He's the suffering Messiah. Zechariah 13, we heard last week, I will strike the shepherd, a suffering shepherd. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Psalm 118, he's the stone the builders rejected. He's the suffering Messiah. You know what else he is? He's the absolutely in control Messiah. Hear these words that Jesus utters that are recorded back in chapter 10. He tells his disciples, See, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and
and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He's in control. Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Do you know what happens when Jesus opens his mouth? His teaching is so amazing that back in chapter 12, it says, after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Don't you think he could have opened his mouth and silenced every false accusation and shut up every accuser? He could have, but he didn't because he's in control. And he knows what needs to happen to be the ransom for your sins and mine. Silent as he stood accused. He was completely in control, which is why Christians can sing as we will in the last song we sing today. Hear this. From life's first cry, to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Can you hear that about yourself? From life's first cry to final breath, this one, this Messiah, completely, perfectly, unwaveringly in control, commands your destiny. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Rest in that good news. And finally, he is the saving Messiah. Chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is this ransom? You've heard of ransomware? Hackers block access to a computer system with ransomware. They demand that money be paid. And so schools and hospitals and cities and companies, by one estimate in the first half of 2023, $440 million in ransom has been paid in order to free captive computer systems. And Jesus comes and says that he will give his life as a ransom for many. He's not giving his, paying this ransom to computer hackers. He's giving his life to free sins captives, you and me, from the deserved, justified, righteous wrath of God. But that ransom life will be sufficient at God's judgment seat to atone for all of your sins and all of mine. What's the price to ransom you from your sins? One 
perfect human life. Where can we find it? In Israel? In the disciples? In Rome? Fairfax County? George Mason University? Washington, D.C., Capitol Hill? Where can we find it? There's only one. But oh, thank God. There is one. And his name is Jesus. Only Jesus can do it. And he does it completely alone, all by himself, with no support from any other human being. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What do we do with this? I think Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 provides a a pathway for us to apply what we're seeing here. Mark was writing to a group of Christians, probably in Rome in the middle part of the first century, and they were being persecuted. They were under pressure. They were in trouble. And the writer to the Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians in a similar place. And though we may not be in exactly the same kind of trouble, we living in this world are in trouble too. Here's what we do with what we've just heard. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. I have to say I prefer the NIV here. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who... Here, Mark 14 and 15, right here. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Brothers and sisters, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Why did he endure suffering and shame and rejection and agony, and death. He didn't owe us anything. We weren't asking him to do this. We weren't helping him in the process. Why did he do this? I'll tell you why. He did it for love. Can you see how great his love is that he would do this for his enemies? I heard an interview this week with an author. He was remarking on his father's faith. And he said this. He said, I've never been able to believe in a God who knows my name and loves me. Oh, my heart went out to this man when I heard that. Because this is the God who knows your name and loves you. May that author come to know this Christ, this saving Messiah. And may you, if you don't know this saving Messiah, may you come to know that he knows you and loves you. 
And if you are in Christ, may you be thrilled this morning. May your heart be warmed and comforted that there is a saving Messiah who knows your name and he loves you. He loves you so much that he would give his life as a ransom, not just for the person sitting next to you, but for you. Can you see his great love for Peter? Before we get to the end of the gospel, on the day of the resurrection, the angel will say to the women who'd come to the tomb, go tell the disciples and Peter that he's gone ahead. The story doesn't end with Peter's failure. And it doesn't have to end with yours either. Bring him your failures. Bring him your sins. They've already been paid for. The ransom price has been Paid. You have been set free. And receive freshly his love for you. And with that in your mind and emotions and heart, brothers and sisters, I leave you with this. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus amen let's pray oh great god father son and Holy Spirit, thank you for your great love, your unspeakably great plan of redemption. Thank you for the way that you've accomplished the ransom being paid for our sins. Thank you for loving us when we were your enemies and how much more now, your children and friends. I pray for every heart here to know in a fresh way the love of Christ. Amen.